Welcome to Data Talks with James Pan. In this episode, we talk with Mike Silver, who's principal of Baron Silver Stevens Financial Advisors, which is a firm that provides comprehensive wealth management services to high net worth investors. Mike started his career in 1994 with a major insurance company, and in 1997, he formed his own independent financial planning firm. He currently holds a number of industry certifications and is an adjunct professor at Florida Atlantic University. Michael specializes in the design, implementation, and funding of advanced estate planning. He has to communicate complex concepts and straightforward language to his clients. And during the interview, we can hear how he does that. We can hear his approachable style. And importantly for our show, we go into how he uses data to run his business and work with his clients. He relates how he looks at financial market information and communicates this to his clients, sensitive to their risk tolerance and their personalities. Here we go. So Mike, thanks for, for joining me on my podcast. Really appreciate your time. Wanted to talk with you about your use of data, your use of information, personally, professionally, and kind of go into that. And I know that's like a very vague, and we were talking about this before. It's like, you know, what do you mean? Like what kind of data, what kind of, let's kind of get into it. First off, can you say like, what do you do? Like, what is it that you do? Well, I uh, own a private wealth management firm. And what we do is comprehensive financial and estate planning, primarily for individuals, but we work with some closely held corporations as well. And we help them with every aspect of their financial life and anything related to money. And that generally means disciplines such as managing a portfolio, reducing, minimizing, eliminating taxation, uh, looking for strategies to generate income and retirement income specifically for many working within their estate planning, mm-hmm. their asset protection, their risk management. And we tend to coordinate their entire plan and work with any other professionals that are necessary in the planning process, which is quite often their CPA, their attorney, maybe even their trust officer. What does estate planning mean? Like, what is Is that your main focus? Is it around estate planning, essentially? Or is it like, what, what does that mean? Well, with estate planning, there's different parts of estate planning to different people in different categories. The first part is everybody should have an estate plan, uh, which includes legal documents to make sure that if they can't make health care or financial decisions, that others can step in and do it for them. Right. And to make sure that they can pass on their assets effectively and efficiently to the right people the right way. Uh-huh. And if they have children, that their children are taken care of properly, both who's going to take care of them as a guardian, and then who's going to help them with their finances. Uh, Then there's a whole nother level of estate planning, which is a more advanced tax planning that focuses on minimizing taxation, Mm -hmm. um, looking to pass on more wealth and to generate more wealth for future generations and make sure that the money that's passed on through future generations is protected from things such as lawsuits and creditors and divorces and leaving the family bloodline and additional layers of taxation. So that's a whole nother level of planning that really affects people as their estate gets larger and they have to deal with other confiscatory taxes. Okay. And then how do you come in though? Like where do you fit within that sort of team of people or that group that, that sort of helps with, um, with managing wealth and estate planning? Like what, what is it that you all do sort of day to day? Well, we tend to be the quarterback really of the team. 
we're the ones that are organizing somebody's entire financial life, making sure they understand it, making sure they have a plan, uh -huh. uh, making sure they have confidence and conviction in their plan. Somebody may have plenty of resources, but if they don't understand them, um, if they don't emotionally feel that they're in, in good shape, then it's not a real solid plan. So okay. it's making sure they have confidence and conviction in their plan and they understand it every step of the way. So your job is to sort of to plan the plan and to also to help the client make sense of it and stay on track. And yeah, it's organized their entire financial life, right. make them understand where they are today, establish goals and objectives of where they want to be into the future, mm -hmm. and then help them execute a plan to get them from point A to point B and understand it along the way. And we educate and guide them to make smart decisions every step of the way. And you'll work with individuals or small corporate entities, small... Uh, right. It's entities. mostly individuals. Uh -huh. Okay. So in doing your job, like what kinds of information do you use like to, to be like the quarterback? You know, like how do you figure out what kind of... <laughs> Um, direction, advice you're going to give to you know, your clients? Well, the first step in our process is to get an understanding of their situation. We need a lot of financial documentation. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a lot of discussions where we dig deep, both emotionally uh, and understanding their level of comfort and understanding of the financial planning process. Once we get all that information in and we've established goals and objectives, we then analyze all that information come back to that individual with a written plan and then set up a plan of execution of how do we make sure that we hit each step of their plan along the way so that it's successful and then review it and monitor it on an ongoing basis. So okay. it's a very proactive relationship. Right. You, you know, it's interesting. You use the word twice, you use a sort of emotional. So uh, talk with me about that. Like where does the client sort of emotional state? Like, how is that important as a factor that sort of plays into what you all do? It's incredibly important. And I think the mistake that much of the financial industry has made is they strictly focus on facts and figures mm -hmm. and they tend to discount or ignore emotions. And emotions drive a lot of the behavior for people. And behavior is going to determine often over time how successful they're going to be with their investments and how much they can benefit from the investment process. And if somebody has a great portfolio, but every time it goes down, they get fearful and sell. And every time it goes up a little bit, they get greedy and, and pile into the latest, greatest, hottest asset class, they're probably not going to do very well over time. Okay. And that's an emotional issue. Right. So when you read a journal on financial planning, it often says, ignore your emotions. We don't think that's realistic. We think it's more important that you focus on your emotions. Right. You understand it. You understand your behavior. And then you plan around that. That makes sense. So you, you mentioned all these different like information sources and then emotions. So how do you get a sense of somebody's emotional state or that emotional factor you're talking about? That's so important. Like, how do you judge that? What do you do to sort of get a sense of that? Well, when we create a financial plan, Often what we first do is figure out what kind of rates of return do they need to achieve on an investment portfolio to get them to where they need to be. And then we'll try to gauge their emotions and, there's, and, and their feelings of risk and establish a risk budget. And we have a number of ways of doing it. But one of the most simple ways is we'll ask a question on a scale from one to 10, one being an investment in cash and CDs and 10 being the general stock market measured by the S&P 500. Where would you think you fit in on that category of risk, understanding that over time and over a full market cycle, if you say a one, 
is your risk level, your expectation of return might only be a one. If you say a 10, your expectation of return might be a 10, but you're going to have full volatility of the stock market. And then we show them based on past historical performance, what does full volatility mean and what are the downsides you and show how them? often do they occur? Well, how do you show that to them? Like, what, what are you using historical data? So there's a, yeah. a chart that I always have handy. Yeah. I can grab it right now because yeah. it's in every conference room of my uh, business. It's in yeah. my office. Right, right. Uh, that'll show each and every year volatility of the S&P 500. Mm-hmm. And you'll find that since 1980, the average intra-year correction in the market is about 14.5% mm-hmm. downside. Right. Yet the market's up historically over 75% of the time. When you're talking about volatility, you mean like it goes down. It goes it down. So go what down. are you yeah. going to do and how are you going to feel and are you going to be able to benefit from recoveries if right. it goes down beyond your point of pressure that you can handle. No, when someone tells you that, like they say like, you know, one to 10 or whatever, how much can you rely on that? You know, what they're, what they're saying and how much, uh, what do you go sort of beyond that? Or do you, or like, what? well, we do go beyond that with a number of other questions, but we have to gauge and understand what is the true risk level Mm -hmm. of that client. And if they say the risk level is a five, but we expect a return of a 10 that we discuss the, that that's unrealistic. Mm-hmm. And we try to set up realistic expectations on a target rate of return and a target range and then fit within a risk budget. And then we have ways that we use statistics to monitor that risk budget on an ongoing basis and show them how are we monitoring it and what statistical measurements and mathematics do we use to say you're at a risk level of a five or six if that's the risk level. So there's thing, there's statistics that you can use that show like how volatile something is and, mm-hmm. and also... We're using what? standard deviation. Uh-huh. We're using beta, yeah, which is similar to statistics that can be used on anything. Right. Sure. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. And so you'll show that to them. It's sort of like an ongoing thing. It's not just like you meet with them and then it just goes from there. It's an ongoing thing. So, and I guess you have experience with them as the market, you know, as the years pass, the market fluctuates and mm-hmm. goes up and down. Yep. How do you use that experience with them? Is that sort of like a source of information, a data source? Um, like seeing how they react when the market tanks and, you know, when these fluctuations happen. Well, when it's not an if, but when it does tank and the market has its big downturns, which is normal and it's inevitable, we spend a lot of time, we go into overdrive trying to get them to understand what is normal, what has happened historically during these periods of time. Is this a threat or is it an opportunity within their plan? Mm -hmm. And what decisions should we make based on on past performance and facts of the situation? And, you know, the more that they can be educated and understand this process, the better the decisions they can make. So it's it's an ongoing process with them? Ongoing. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And regular ongoing reviews and discussions is necessary. And then going through some of these downturns together. Mm-hmm. And understanding them. Hey, give me an example of a of a downturn, and you know, generically, like just pick a maybe an instance or an example, or maybe combine some together. I don't know, but um, of how clients can react, and then how you sort of deal with that, or I should say, how you help them. A great example was in two thousand and eight, mm-hmm. and you had a big market downturn. Specifically, one week in September, the market dropped almost twenty percent. The S and P five hundred. Mm-hmm. And at that point in time, the decisions people would make are going to have dramatic impacts 
on their success as an investor into the future. So what would happen in that position, because everybody was panicked, was I actually put together a, a full-blown presentation to sit with each client and explain historical downturns, market corrections, recessions, how long recoveries so, have so lasted. You're doing a presentation with them. And yeah. meanwhile, they're, some of them are like probably panicked out of their mind, no? They are, but I say that they need to know the facts. Again, it's all based on history but the facts before they make a decision. And I laid out all of the facts, and then we discussed what should be the decision. And those facts were based on data. So the decision could be buy or sell this or that. Yeah. Right. It could yeah. be buy. It's an opportunity. It could be I need to sell some of this. I can't handle it any longer. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be some combination of that. And you see the whole range of responses from people? Y yes, but – when they can really understand all of this mm -hmm. and they understand the facts and yeah. they've seen the data, they tend to get a lot more comfortable with market downturns and understand that they are more normal. Some are more extreme than others, mm -hmm. but they're normal and inevitable. And how do you know if somebody is getting that, like really understanding that when you're meeting with them, when you're talking with them? Like That's my job as a professional mm -hmm. with you know, over 20 years of experience is to understand when is somebody getting that. And if they're not, it's to be patient enough to work with them until they do understand it. Right. So there's a big part of your job is also communicating and knowing someone's emotional, like empathizing with them. Or it's an enormous it. part of, of the job of a financial planner. Yeah. So it's, it's you know, I would say it's not just as a, uh, a person to invest their money, you become a financial coach and you become a confidant. And you got to remember that People are sharing deep, dark information with you, information mm -hmm. about their money, their finances, right. how they feel about their family, mm -hmm. what their fears are. So you're getting information that they generally don't share with anybody. Uh, you know a lot about these people. Mm -hmm. And that can help to have a better relationship and to get through the good and bad times together. Yeah. How many clients uh, roughly do you, do you have? Or, uh, uh, we have about 350 clients or families that we work okay. with. Okay. All right. That's a lot of stories. Yeah. Right? A lot mm -hmm. of histories. Is it that you sort of got them slowly over time or is it like how do you sort of remember their – like what do you use to remember their stories? Their, what You tend to remember – it sounds like a lot of people, but each and every one of them you have stories and experiences with and okay. you get to know them. It's like saying I had 350 friends. Can you tell me mm -hmm. about them? Of course you can. Mm -hmm. uh, but in addition to that, we keep very detailed notes on every meeting that we have. Um, we review their situations at least quarterly. So you're, you're constantly in touch with all these people. You know, I so generally will have four to six meetings a day. Mm -hmm. And your average client is how old? Are they, they tend to be older or younger? or what Our type? average client is, uh, and I have the exact figures, but uh, I'm going to ballpark it, is about 58. Mm-hmm. And they tend to be higher net worth individuals or is you have um, a whole range? Not the super high net worth, right. but I, I would call it the, the affluent. Um, okay. Most of our clients tend to be in net worth somewhere between 2 and $10 million is the typical range. Okay. So then here at the office, you're the head of your business here, mm -hmm. right? So you have uh, not just working with clients, helping clients and so forth, but then also running your business, mm -hmm. right? So in order to do that effectively, 
what kind of information do you use? Like what kind of uh, data do you rely on to operate the office, to look at how your business is doing, to you know, all these sort of things? Like what do you do? Well, I've been following the same process for the operation of our business for probably the last 17, 18 years. And we, we measure lots of different things. So it's having a business plan. It's having a budget. It's having a marketing plan. It's understanding all your financial figures, the makeup of your clients, the amount, the assets under management, your overhead, uh, just like any business. Mm -hmm. And we keep all this in a detailed book. And I track it. Each you got it all year. there. Oh, look at that. You got it all the way. 1997. 1997. And it's the same format, uh -huh. looking for trends and looking to see the direction that we're going in. And we measure all this. And what can, what can you say about the direction that, that uh, what patterns have you seen over the years, like with your own you know, business? Well, you go through different levels of growth patterns. You hit certain ceilings. Then you've got to hire new people. And then you've got to change directions. And then... You know, economies shift and the way people think shift. You know, I started in 1994 and we didn't really have technology. Mm -hmm. In fact, when I started, I didn't have a computer. <laughs> you know, now it's a whole different world. So you mm -hmm. had to adjust and adapt and change. And, yeah. you know, your core business and I think your values and your vision have to remain consistent and steady. But you have to adapt and change constantly. Yeah. And that's probably any business. That makes sense. What What is your, your process for really connecting with your clients? You know, you mentioned uh, that emotional connection or, or understanding that and, and the personal connection. What is your own process for really connecting with a client and getting to understand them and having them feel comfortable with you? And how would you describe that? It's like any other relationship. It develops over time mm -hmm. and you can't become often closest during a time of crisis. Mm -hmm. And that's when you need to lean on advisors more than any other period of time. That's often when that bond is formed. Generally, it's not in the good times, it's in the bad times. Whether it's a major decision, whether it's a client going through a divorce, whether it's somebody has died, whether they lost somebody close to them, whether the market's bad, yeah. um, there's generally enough crisis in people's lives that there's opportunities for that. Right. Yeah, sure. And uh, that generally is when you really bond with somebody. How can you tell when things are not going well with a client? Like you're just not, they're not happy or they're just, they're in a bad place, like in terms of their own plan and how they're feeling. How can you tell that? Uh, I can usually sense that immediately if we're not clicking. Yeah. It's like any relationship. If you're not clicking with somebody and you feel you're not clicking on your end, right. they're probably not clicking on their end. Right. Makes and sense. you either can try to work at it like any other relationship and improve it. Mm -hmm. Or you can realize that you're going in different directions and the relationship won't work out and they may be better served elsewhere. That and that sense. does, unfortunately, it happens. And what do you do in those cases? If I see it going in the wrong direction, yeah. we'll have a heart-to-heart. -heart and uh -huh. I'll say it seems like the philosophies we follow or may not be in line with the philosophies that you follow. Right. Um, and I think we need to openly discuss it. Okay. What kind of mistakes do you see other financial planners make or, or what are the biggest mistakes in your industry? It's tough because there's, uh, <laughs> you got to, yeah, if it's, you have, unfortunately, like any business out there, you have some unethical people. Mm -hmm. That's 
mistake number one. Yeah. Anytime your ethics are compromised in any way, especially at the expense of another individual that's trusting you and that's trusting you with their entire financial life, mm -hmm. that's an enormous mistake that I don't believe can be forgiven. And there's a lot of those mistakes that do go on in the financial industry. Other mistakes from the ethical people yeah. <laughs> would be not listening to what somebody's saying, uh, not having empathy for what they're feeling or saying, right? not understanding or communicating with that person properly. It may also be trying to outsmart or think you're smarter than the markets themselves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we use a pretty academic approach to diversification and asset allocation. It's a very institutional approach mm -hmm. that's relatively boring, but works. And it means you can benefit from investing properly yeah. and you will win over time, but it means you you may not beat the system. And we see a lot of people try to beat the system and most of them end up losing big. So yeah, we very talk, few make yeah, it big. We've talked about this before personally, right? So this idea of like being able to wanting to outsmart the market. Talk talk more about that. Like what does that mean? I mean shouldn't you want to outsmart the market? I mean like what 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 does that mean exactly? Sure. By definition of diversification and asset allocation, it means you have a broad array of different investments in different asset classes. Some of them are going to zig and some of them are going to zag. So you get a fair, consistent return over time. Mm -hmm. But that also means by definition that you can't get the highest return. Mm -hmm. You're accepting a reasonable return. You're not getting the highest return. And that goes against the belief of many people and what everybody wants to do, which is I want to beat the next person. Mm -hmm. I want to do better than the next person. And the only way you can do better than the next person is you buy the right investment or you buy the right asset class before it goes up and you sell it before it goes down. Mm -hmm. And our belief is that nobody's been able to do that with any sense of consistency. And more money has been lost that way than has been made that way. But nobody, like even the, you know, the Warren Buffetts of the world? Like, or, or... I think Warren Buffett will be the first to admit uh -huh. that his investment process is a lengthy process. Oh, it's a long-term. Okay, that's versus, patient where right. he buys investments. Now, he strictly buys, for the most part, stocks. Mm -hmm. And he tries to buy them when they're out of favor and they're good core businesses. And then he's patient over time. And when he buys a business, he's buying it for the expectation of that business's cash flow over 5, 10, 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. It's not the quick buck. And we see too many people, especially with the excitement of the technology and the internet right, right. and you know the hype of, of fast money trading, uh -huh. try to make money quick. And I don't know any that are successful with it. And we know lots of people in this industry. A client will call you, let's say, and say, oh, I'm really interested in buying, like I think gold is going to, or you know, whatever, this mm -hmm. company. What do you say to them if that's not consistent with their risk model? And they're, they're trying to sort of game this, not game the system, but beat, you know, beat the market, right? Yeah. Like you're saying, what do you say with them and how do you sort of guide what you're going to say? Well, we'll discuss why I make these statements, mm -hmm. um, but that if it's not consistent with our philosophies or our investment process, and we don't think it's in their interest, that we won't do it for them. Or if they really want us to do it, can we do it an amount that's very small and won't affect you, assuming that you've got enough money mm -hmm. that you can make some of these bets on things that won't affect you financially. If we think it'll have an impact on their financial life, yeah. then we're committing malpractice to allow them to 
to make a bad decision if we understand that. Or we'll tell them, if you want to have a fun account, go open up a fun account somewhere else and go do whatever you want to do. How do you persuade a client when it's not in their best interest to not make a trade or to engage in a in a seeking out to like beat the market like you're talking about? How do you persuade them to do that? How do you to sort of not keep them how to not do it? Like if, you, if that's not in their best interest, how do you sort of approach that? We'll discuss the reasons that we say that, but ultimately we'll tell them that we're not a place that they should be working with and they should go find another place to go. And if they know the answers, then why would you pay a financial planner or any financial advisor? Just go do it on your own and you can go open up an account at a discount brokerage right. firm and there's really no cost to trade anymore. And some people will, will take that advice. Yeah. And some people, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the only way that you're going to be successful with a client in our business is if your goals are aligned mm -hmm. and you, you think in a similar way. Right. Uh, otherwise, it's a short-term proposition, and you shouldn't enter into that, and they shouldn't enter into that. So we, we let them know all this up front. Otherwise, if it's not a good fit, it's you move move on. Are there any other like sources of, of data that are important to you in your work, like you know uh, ways in which you get information or types of information that are important that we haven't talked about that impact how you do your job? Well, we're constantly fed with data from many different sources, every major bank, every major wirehouse firm, every investment banking firm. Mm -hmm. The hard part isn't getting the data, it's organizing the data and getting it in a user-friendly format to help us make better decisions for our clients. So how do you do that? I mean, interpreting the data and, and compiling and compiling all the results. Yeah, and, and we, yeah. we have our favorites. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we have a few firms yeah. That every single quarter we get data on lots of different measurements on the economy. This isn't based on predictions, but it's based on facts and looking at every different sector and where the unemployment rate is headed and interest rates and inflation and currencies and, yeah. you know, every data point you, you can imagine. And then it's taking that information and trying to create themes of what direction do we think we're going in? You know, is the economy you know, headed into a recession or are we expanding? Mm -hmm. And that will impact what you tell your clients in terms of their investments or like, how will that impact like the advice that you give? Well, it'll it impact where do we overweight or underweight within a portfolio and where do we think the biggest threats and opportunities might be. Okay. Now, we won't jump all in to any one of those areas because mm -hmm. we could very well be wrong. And although the data and the facts may say one thing, for reasons that we can't control and outside variables, it may go in a different direction. Right. And you see that happen. Uh, you have sure. Any, you have it's a very humbling like business. A, yeah. yeah. Coming out of the 2008 recession with all the printing of money and quantitative easing right. and the three biggest themes that everybody expected was right. that we'd see interest rates go up and mm -hmm. they've come down, that the dollar would weaken, mm -hmm. it strengthened, and right. that we'd see heavy inflation and we're still battling deflation. Right. If somebody's portfolio was entirely structured around those three themes, they've lost money or not made very much money during one of the best bull markets we've seen. Mm -hmm. So in, in that case, there was some restructuring or some reweighting, but it wasn't uh, an absolute one. Mm -hmm. Correct. And that's how you sort of mitigate the risk. And that's diversification. Okay. Makes so sense. they still benefited 
nicely over this period of time. Would they have made more money if 100% of their money was in large cap stocks in the US? Sure. Yeah. But that could have gone in the complete other direction and they could have lost a lot of money. Sure. What made you go into this industry? Like, uh, you know, way back when. So you've been doing this now for a while, right? Like how long? Since I mean, 1994. 1994. So 21 years. Okay. 21 years. What would you say was like the big, you know, what, how did you, how did you figure this out uh, to go into this? What, what pushed you towards this? I was always interested in money and finance and, uh-huh. um, uh, the markets. So I always found this interesting. Uh, it was trying to figure out which part of it do you go into? And at the time, financial planning was in its infancy and really just getting started. And there wasn't a lot of opportunities within the profession of financial planning, which is the concept of putting a lot of these disciplines together. Mm -hmm. So you could go be a stockbroker. You could go be an insurance salesman. You can go be a a CPA. You can go be an attorney. um, But there wasn't a lot of that person in the middle that kind of takes all those disciplines and, and organizes it and coordinates it. And I started off with a major insurance company, Mass Mutual. Uh, was there for three years and then started my own business, which ultimately merged in with another business with the concept of comprehensive holistic financial planning. And um, it's grown the field of financial planning uh, over the years and become much more accepted. And I think the preferred style of dealing with a financial advisor. Is there a, is it become more regulated as well? Like, are there sort of credentials that, that have to be earned and different? Uh, yeah, uh, and it's constantly the regulation process within handling people's money and giving financial advice is constantly evolving. You know, right now we're dealing with a lot out of Dodd-Frank um, and the what they call the fiduciary rule, which is trying to disclose and determine when is somebody acting as a fiduciary in the best interest of a client and giving advice, or when are they acting for their own interest right. or the interest of a larger institution. What's a, what's a fiduciary? Fiduciary is somebody that would act in the best interest of somebody else. Okay. Uh, so there's no conflict, like inherent like conflict of interest for them? Is that what you mean? Or and, Well, the, the, you can, there can still be a conflict of interest and you can be a fiduciary. The key uh-huh. is, do you disclose that conflict of interest and does the other party okay. understand the conflict and of interest? And sometimes that's not, that doesn't happen. Correct. Okay. And sometimes somebody isn't technically a fiduciary. They may work for another company, but they could still be acting in the best interest of that individual or that client and doing all the right things. So this is where the ethical part gets. uh, It's very gray. It's, uh, you know, I always joke every year I take an ethics exam. I have to every single year. It's the Mm -hmm. same exam a Bertie Madoff took and Alan Stanford took and all all the, the, you know, Ponzi scheme people took. Yeah. So ethics can't be tested. It's knowing right from wrong. Right. And choosing right. So there's the legal part, right? And then the ethical part. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the legal part is more clear cut, but the ethical part is uh, sometimes harder to sort of. Correct. Yeah. You know. Correct. Much like any industry. Yeah. So what are the resources, books, websites are helpful for you to uh, to do your job and to uh, stay abreast of relevant information? And also, um, aside from what you've mentioned already, and uh, run your business as well, What are the what are the things that you rely on? Well, being in this industry, everything is really spoon-fed. So we're getting information, again, from all the large banks, investment banking firms, analysts, economists. Um, you know, Every day, I probably get 50 mm-hmm. to 100 emails mm-hmm. of that type of information. 
along with industry journals and yeah. magazines, and and then we have um, right. Know, but what do you a like? lot of proprietary like, information? What what is good for you? You know what what is help more most helpful for you? I like and follow understanding where the economy is and all the facts and figures and data points okay. and all the different indicators of the right. economy. I use a lot of that in formulating thoughts and opinions. Okay. There are favorite analysts, economists mm -hmm. um, that you pay attention to that I'll, I'll listen to far more than others. Okay. Can you mention them or is it uh, better not to? It's all proprietary stuff. I mean, there's, okay. there's, we're getting information from, from lots of different places. Gotcha. Okay. How about in terms of running your business? What's important for you for that uh, information wise? I read a lot of books and uh, I copy a lot of information from other firms that I have found have been successful. Mm -hmm. um, so anytime there's a book written on financial planning firms and how they're structured and practice mm -hmm. management, I read it. I've been to many different conferences. I've talked to many different people. And when I hear a good bit of information, I try to incorporate it into my practice. I can't tell you there's a whole lot of original thoughts, but there's a tremendous amount of thoughts that other smart people have thought of and uh -huh. figured out, and I use that information. And you found it to be helpful going through that process. Very. If I hear there's a successful financial planning practice, uh -huh. I'm immediately looking what? at their website. I'm yeah. trying to dig information about them. I'm trying to understand what they've done to be successful. Right, right, right. And I'm trying to steal bits of information from them. What's the single, like just thinking back, like what's the single like most important thing that, that helped you out of all those lessons or those uh, those books or in terms of how you, you know, you're running your that, business? Running your that business. You, it is a business that you've got to have structure. You've got to have systems. You've got to systematize every single thing you can in your business. You've got to be organized. Everybody has to follow processes. There has to be a tremendous amount of structure for everything to work smoothly. And it's a lot of work up front to get it that way. But once it's working and it becomes normal practice, mm -hmm. then it frees up your time to do what you really want to do, which is work with clients, speak with clients, and, and do productive things. Right. So having good systems in place has been very, that's been one of the most important things. Yeah. Just, makes sense. One last question. So if you could talk to your younger self, like, you know, from 20 you know years ago, and you could sort of tell them like the lesson that you, you've learned that you have now, what, what would you tell them? Like what, what sort of thing would you go back and let your the younger version of yourself know that could help them? Does that make sense? Um, yeah. Make sure you're passionate about what you do. Make sure you have short and long-term plans, that you have a focus, that you're driven, and that you have a course of action, not in a stubborn way. You have to be flexible, but you know where you want to go and you can see that vision and then attack it. And, and how would you tell yourself to do that? Again, if you're talking to yourself. It's almost instinctive that you start to develop that within uh -huh. the business world. To develop that, you would start to just yeah. to be open to that or acknowledge it. That's the sort of advice you'd give. Yeah, and try to have fun along the way. Yeah, great, Mike. Thank you very much. Thanks for talking with me. Thank you. Appreciate it. If somebody wants to get in touch with you, where can they find you? How can they, they get in touch with you? What's the best way? Uh, they can always call. Our phone number is 561-447-1997. Yep. They can go to our website, which is www.b as in boy, s as in Sam, s as in Sam, f as in Frank, a as in apple.com. So that's www.bssfa.com. Yeah, we'll have that in the show notes. Okay, great. 
All right. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. 